We'll read from Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, verse 26, and we'll read through verse 56. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now all generations from, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and return to her home. So far from the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from hymn 21, stanza 1 through 6.
we just sang is taken from Luke chapter 2, and that's also going to be our text this morning. So I would, I would ask you to turn back to Luke, and we'll read Luke chapter 2, the verses 1 through 20. Luke 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger." And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. So far from God's word. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, it was a warm evening in Bethel, sometime in late September or early October perhaps. The carpenter Joseph and his wife Mary were arriving in the city of Bethel after a long day of traveling. They were tired. It had been a two-day journey already, and there was still another day ahead of them before they would get to Bethlehem, their destination. The journey had been uphill nearly all day, and the next day promised to be a lot more of the same. It was a long climb from Nazareth, in the, from the Nazareth, which was in the lower valleys of Samaria, to Bethlehem in the mountains of Judah, some 85 to 90 miles in total. And that's almost 1,000 feet up in elevation. It's an especially long journey if you're a pregnant woman. And as they made that last climb up the road that entered into the city of Bethel, 
Mary was surely just looking forward to finding a place to rest, to put up her feet and to enjoy a small meal before sleeping for the night. The baby inside of her needed that rest as much as she did. Over the past day, as they were traveling in those moments of silence when there was nothing really left to talk about with her husband, she must have reflected on the months behind her. Such a mysterious time in her life, such strange things that she had seen and heard. What did it all mean? What did the angel mean by greeting her as, Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you? What did he mean by the things that he told her? What did it mean that she was pregnant in the first place? Why did her cousin's baby leap in the womb for joy when she entered the house? And it all boiled down to that same question, who is this baby inside her womb? There was a lot for Mary to think about on that journey. So many questions, so much mystery. The two of them were journeying towards Bethlehem. Luke, who is a doctor, he put the details of this story together for us. And Luke tells us that the purpose of their journey was to be registered in a census for tax purposes. And for some reason, the government had ordered, or maybe it was just the expectation, that everyone be registered in their family's homeland instead of in the places where they lived. Now, it wasn't the first census that it required such a thing. Here in Canada, our parents' homeland doesn't mean as much to us as it would have meant to them in that time. We're often comfortable moving to a different province or a different country, and sometimes we never really look back. But in those times, you were tied to your homeland. Even generations later, you remembered your homeland, and that was still your home. Even if you moved away for work or for necessity, it was never forever. You or your children or your grandchildren would still eventually return. You belonged in your parents' homeland. So Joseph was on his way there with his wife. Now Luke says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. There's a bit of debate about some of the details in there. We won't get into that. But The point is, Luke mentions this this detail because he sees it as important that readers can verify the story that he's telling. They can verify the circumstances that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. People would have been wondering, why, why why was Jesus born in Bethlehem when his family lived in Nazareth? And so Luke gives them these details to explain how that happened. By the end of the next day... Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem. Now, we don't know how many days they were there. It could have been a few days, could have been a month or more. But with all the people that happened to be there in the city at that time, and most of them richer than that young carpenter Joseph, they couldn't find a place to stay other than a stall for animals, probably cows, perhaps sheep. And while they were staying there, the text says, The time came for Mary to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. It's interesting that Luke specifically mentions that this was Mary's firstborn son, which is obvious because she's a virgin. We already know that. 
And the commentaries puzzle over why, why does Luke mention this detail that he is her firstborn? Well, I can't help but think he does it to, emphas- to emphasize what Mary and Joseph were going through and to help us to empathize with them. What an uncertain time for Mary and Joseph. Many mothers here can remember what it was like to give birth to your firstborn, how many questions and uncertainties and mysteries there are in that time, how careful young mothers are with everything that they touch or everything that their baby touches. So imagine having to deliver your firstborn child in a barn, probably with the animals not that far off, and to have to lay him in a manger It's a feeding trough. When I was a kid, by the way, I used to think that a manger was some kind of crib or bassinet. Maybe other kids think that because you never hear that word in day-to-day language. But a manger is a feeding trough for the animals. And so I think Luke reminds us of this detail that, that Jesus was her firstborn to help us understand what this couple was going through, how poor, how humble their circumstances really were. Imagine giving birth for the first time in a barn and laying your firstborn baby in a feeding trough because there's nowhere else to put him. Surely Mary and Joseph were just looking forward to getting back home to Nazareth. And you can see in these verses then such a contrast that, that Luke is drawing for us. In the same paragraph, you have Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, the governor of Syria, and all the institutions of power that they represent. And then you have this poor Jewish carpenter and his wife, too poor to even get a place in the inn, so that they have to stay in a barn, and she has to give birth there. And the king of the world, God himself, chooses there to come into our world. It's the most humble beginning for the savior of the world. And such a contrast from the halls of power where you might expect a king to be born. And that's exactly the point that Luke is trying to make. This is the God who doesn't need and doesn't want the halls of power to accomplish his goals. This is the God who, even as Mary herself sang in in verse 51 of chapter 1, this is the God who scatters the thoughts of the proud in their hearts and brings down the mighty ones from their thrones and exalts those of humble estate. Christ came to earth to dwell with the poorest of the poor, the humble, the meek, the Son of God, through whom the world itself was made, was born as a tiny Jewish baby in a humble barn. He's not ashamed to associate with the lowly or to stink with the smelly being born into a barn. He came into an impoverished and broken and suffering world in order to save that world. If we're scandalized by the fact that he had to be born to this couple in that place, we should be even more scandalized by the fact that he was born into this broken, sinful world in the first place, that he became one of us, the sinful human race that we are. So that's 
Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. Meanwhile, Luke takes us out to the fields around Bethlehem where some shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks. You have to appreciate how much work went into writing this gospel. Luke himself, of course, wasn't there. And he says in in the beginning of chapter 1 that he obtained all this information from the different people who were there, all the eyewitnesses, and he put it together into an orderly account. And so now, as that's happening in Bethlehem, he takes us to the fields around Bethlehem to some shepherds watching over their sheep. Now, we should be careful as we read this not to over-romanticize the scenes here. Because they're so familiar to us and because we always see these things on Christmas cards and so forth, we tend to make everything perfect and beautiful and clean. But that's exactly the opposite of the point that Luke is making. Jesus was born into a dirty and smelly place. The old hymn, Away in a Manger, is almost certainly wrong when it says, The Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. He was born a human baby. Of course, he would have cried. And in the same way, we shouldn't over-romanticize these shepherds. They're not, shepherds were not considered a high or noble profession in Israel. Many Jews looked down on shepherds as low-class, uneducated workers. And that's what they were. They were plain, uneducated workers doing the night shift that no one else wanted to do. And that is exactly why God revealed himself to them. It's the same thing that we see in the humble birth of Jesus. God chose to hide the greatest event in history from kings and princes and instead reveal it to the poorest and the most humble of all people on earth. People who had nothing to offer back to God. Well, we can only imagine what this night would have been like for the shepherds. They would have begun their shift sometime in the evening and probably would have been sitting together on a hillside talking about whatever shepherds would have talked about from their view on the hill over the sheep. And it would have begun begun as a normal night. Maybe they talked about the changing of the seasons. It was starting to get colder. Soon they'd have to bring their extra cloak along. The best research says that Jesus was probably born in September, maybe October, based on the records of who was serving in the temple. And maybe they talked about that. Maybe they talked about the changing season. Maybe they talked about their family lives or the regular challenges and conflicts that come up in our lives. It was a normal night for these shepherds. And suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. In the Christmas cards that, that we hand out, you, you often see a picture of these, these cute little angels up in the sky. But nowhere in the Bible do you find that sort of picture. Whenever angels appear, they appear as mighty warriors and always standing on the ground. So suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to these shepherds and Luke says, The glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord It's impossible to even begin to describe what that would have looked or felt like for these shepherds, but it was surely a fearsome sight. Consider what the people of Israel saw in Exodus chapter 24. It says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. The glory of the Lord, it's much more than just a bright light that shines around, which is usually what you see in the paintings, because that's the best that we can do. 
It would have been far more than that, though. It would have been a a deep impression far beyond putting into words of the weightiness, the beauty, the power, the holiness, the righteousness of God. And the result of it was these shepherds were filled with great fear, Luke says, and rightly so. That's the reaction that you always find in Scripture when the glory of the Lord is revealed to somebody. They are filled with fear. They tremble. They fall on the ground onto their faces, bowing before God or pleading with God to spare their lives. So it's not surprising the angels' first words are, Fear not. The shepherds needed that kind of reassurance. They had come completely unprepared for an encounter with God, and they recognized their lives were on the line. But the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. What a relief for the shepherds it must have been to hear the the angels say, Fear not, I bring you good news. It could just as easily have been otherwise. Now the shepherds almost certainly would have understood what the angels were talking about. The Jewish people were waiting for this Savior. That's what hymn 16, which we sang earlier, expresses. They were expecting the Savior. They knew that he was coming, and he was coming soon. As a result, many false messiahs had already come, taking advantage of the people's expectation. And so when the shepherds heard the words, Unto you is born this day a Savior in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord, they immediately knew what the angels were speaking about. This was the moment in history that they And their people had been waiting for, for so long. And so the angel continues, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. There's an implicit command in giving them that detail. And the command is that the shepherds would go and look for this Savior. And so the angels gave the shepherds the clue that they needed to be able to pick him out from all the other infants in Bethlehem. Nowhere else would you find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a feeding trough for cows or sheep. must have really surprised the shepherds to hear this, but they were probably too much in shock anyway from the glory of the Lord to be able to stop and think about how unlikely it really was that the Savior was born in these situations. And then suddenly it says there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You can see the immediate, almost irresistible reaction of the angels. They praised God. They give glory to God. This is the right reaction and the only appropriate reaction to the Christmas story. Glory to God. Glory to God for sending the Savior that he promised. Glory to God for remembering his people. Glory to God for ignoring the halls of power and sending the Messiah to be born in this way to these people. 
Only God would do things this way. Glory to God for shaming the wise and the powerful and revealing this great news, the greatest news in all of history, to poor, humble shepherds. Glory to God in the highest, they sing, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The King James has the expression peace and goodwill toward men that's based on a wrong understanding of the Greek. It happens to fit well with our culture's understanding of Christmas, goodwill towards all mankind, but it isn't what the angels said. They said, peace among those with whom he is pleased, or peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace. This is what Christmas is all about. The Savior came to bring peace. And not just peace between nations that are at war, although Scripture certainly teaches that is coming as a result of Jesus' work. But in the first place, Christmas is about peace between God and His people. That's what the Savior was born to accomplish The angels understood what we also so badly need to understand. The brokenness in this world, the suffering, the poverty. Two weeks ago, the UN described the the situation in Yemen, which is at least as bad as the situation in Syria. The majority, the majority of the 24 million people are lacking basic food and water. Children dying of hunger all over the country because there's just nothing left after the war. Well, that poverty, that conflict, that lack of peace, the terrible brokenness in that country and in every country and really in every heart, that begins and stems out of the fundamental, the deepest brokenness and lack of peace in the relationship between us and God. And so when the angels announced the birth of Christ, they sang, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, sweet, blessed, undeserved peace to those upon whom God's favor rests. The peace they're speaking about is the restoration of the worst and deepest brokenness of all, the broken relationship between us sinful human beings and our God, the brokenness which lies at the heart of all the other brokenness in the world. Brothers and sisters, Christmas is not an easy season for everyone. For many of us, Christmas is the hardest season of all. And peace is the last thing that many of us feel. For some of us, the impossibly tight budget seems to rob us of all peace, and Christmas is yet another reminder of it. Some have lost their jobs or have had to leave their work because of failing health and have already struggled all year to make ends meet. They would love to decorate their homes or give gifts to their children, and yet they find there's nothing left over in the budget. How badly, likewise, Mary and Joseph would have loved to have something better for their firstborn son than to be born under these circumstances. And many of us can relate so well to that same feeling on Christmas. Some of us are having to experience Christmas for the first time without their loved ones, and they don't know how they're going to get through the day. That empty chair at the dinner table, it's a testimony to the emptiness we feel inside of us. 
Some of us are having to face Christmas for the 10th or 20th time already without a child who is taken away. And they still feel the brokenness like it was yesterday. Some of us have come from countries that have been torn apart by war and would give anything to have their loved ones and their homes and their friends back. Some of us are watching families get together and they still don't understand why their mom or dad walked out on them. Why they always have to be the broken family on Christmas. Some have watched their children grow up and abandon the faith. And they would give anything to see their children back on Christmas. And some have wanted for so long to have a husband or a wife. And they find it so hard to watch other couples enjoy the Christmas season and get together and and experience the love and delight of family. A family that they're afraid they might never have. Some are fighting that lonely daily battle against depression and loneliness. And they find Christmas to be the hardest season of all. They find that joy that they long for, that others seem to experience, so elusive. When everyone else seems so happy and it makes the struggle feel so much more lonely. This season tends to amplify our losses and our hurts and our needs and our struggles. It's a season where we're reminded of the brokenness that Christ came into this world to save us from. And so our Savior was born into that, this broken world. It's the brokenness of our lives and the absence of peace in our hearts, beginning with the brokenness in our relationship with God. That is the reason why Christ came to be born into a war-torn country, to a poor and humble carpenter's family, to be born as an infant without even a crib to be laid in, but instead to be laid in an animal's feeding trough, to live among sinners in order to heal the wounds of a broken people. The Son of God, who deserved every honor and all glory in heaven and on earth, was born as one of us, coming into a broken world which we had broken in order to give us peace again. And he would do that through the cross. Those fragile little fingers in the manger were destined for the most terrible end imaginable so that our guilty hands wouldn't have to go there. The blood being pumped through that tiny heart would be the blood that would save us. Unto us, a Savior is born. It's a bittersweet, somber kind of joy. What sins we have committed to deserve this kind of end, and for our Lord to be born for this kind of death. And yet he came, and praise God that he came, and he came willingly, because that was the only way for us to have peace. This is what Christmas is all about. That peace is for only those whom God chooses. The angels say, peace to men on whom his favor rests. The peace that our Savior brought us through the cross did not come without a terrible cost, and God in his sovereignty owes it to nobody. Christmas is also a day for remembering Christ's undeserved favor towards sinners who have done nothing at all to deserve it. 
It was for our sin that that beautiful, innocent child was born to ultimately die for us. There's nothing behind that but the sovereign, gracious choice of God, the mercy, the undeserved favor of God. And so the angels saying, glory to God in the highest. Who could respond to the birth of our Savior in any other way? Even the angels who who never sinned and who never needed God's mercy or God's saving grace, even they, when they saw the depth of the mercy and the favor of God, they could not help but sing, glory to God in the highest. And the shepherds, when they went to Bethlehem and they found the, the child exactly as the angels had described, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, they responded in the same way as the angels. Verse 20 says, The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, exactly as it had been told them. They were persuaded of the truth of what they had seen when they found the baby Jesus exactly as the angels had told them, so that they had no doubt, no resistance left inside of them. They recognized God's faithfulness to his promises when they might have forgotten that God was even still paying attention to them. And so they beheld the faithfulness of God and saying glory to God. They saw the birth of the Messiah, not in palaces of kings, but in a humble manger. They beheld the wisdom of God. They saw the multitude of the heavenly host and beheld the power of God. Of God. They recognized that this was the Savior, and they beheld then the goodness of God to finally bring peace to a broken people and a broken world. All of these impressions would have struck them at once and, and filled their thoughts and even overcame them. And as they saw the truth of all these things, their hearts were filled with praise and glory to God. And so, brothers and sisters, this is what the birth of our Savior into this broken world should also cause us to do. Why should the perfect Son of God be born into a world that we have broken by our sins in order to die and save a people like us? What a good, merciful, wise righteous God he is, to send his son to be born as one of us in order to save us. Many of our hearts are heavy this Christmas season, and singing might not come easy to us, but let us reflect with the angels and the shepherds on the goodness and the mercy of God so that we may sing with them glory to God in the highest and on earth Peace to those on whom his favor rests. For unto us a Savior is born. Come and let us adore him. Amen.